Today we talk about murder. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the various voices totally featured on this. That. <laughs> did you like were you home practicing how you're gonna say murder? Did it sound like I had practiced yeah, it did. that? <laughs> it did. <laughs> well, we are talking about murder. Uh, Buddy Morehouse. Um, not known around Lansing parts as an author of murder, about murder, but he did write a book. Uh, he is our guest today. His book is called Murder of an Elvis Girl, Solving the Jenny Maxwell Case. He's our guest today on the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. That was so oh my cool. God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> didn't your microphone break when we were... No, I was an idiot and I think I had something muted and wasn't paying attention. You okay? It's my allergies. Yeah, Literally, I have... COVID. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't have COVID. Jimmy got tested You couldn't have, like, edited that better. Welcome to Cold Oatmeal, a podcast by the Rush Strategies team about PR and public affairs. Really. I was distracted staring at Joe's cold oatmeal. Yeah, well, it's here. He's got it on his desk. It's always here. It's always here. And by the way, the the ratio of like fruit to disgusting is like one to ten. It's got some disgusting stuff and some fruit. Yeah, there's like nothing disgusting. One part fruit. What's, what, what in there is disgusting? I don't even know what's in it, but it, it looks like cucumber mash and maybe a couple of chopped apples. Did you have Burger King for breakfast? What was your... Say that! <laughs> okay, welcome back. This is Matt Resch. You're listening to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast, the podcast team. Nikki's already laughing. I don't know Why where are we laugh? are in the recording now. We I'm never do. Okay. <laughs> Just go with it. Say your name when he points at you. This is the 74th yeah, episode. <laughs> We've done this 74 times. So I don't run this thing. I don't have to pay attention. <laughs> well, we do it in a different order every time. That's so true. it does Thank get you, Carly. Can't you tell just from what he says, though? Like, when he opens that way, that's no, always the same. Always yeah, like, then he calls hey, me out for it. Hey, I'm this, and you're listening to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. <laughs> hey, I'm this. <laughs> okay. Well, you guys can write. <laughs> I know what you're <laughs> you doing. You guys are both like, <laughs> okay, you guys are stupid. Write, I know. Write me out some tips for next time. We'll figure out how to do this. Um, this is Matt Resch. Um, I am the owner of Resch Strategies. <laughs> we are a public affairs and a public relations firm in downtown Lansing, Michigan. Uh, you can find us at reschstrategies.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Resch Strategies. And, of course, what are you guys doing? You're distracted. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just distracted by how dirty Joe's glasses are right now. <laughs> I look over oh, at Nikki. I look over at Nikki and she is just like making the most disgusted face at Joe. Like, ew. <laughs> You're a grubby little kid. Should we try to do this podcast some other time? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> What noon? were you saying? Anything I'm listening. Noon, yes. noon is never on Twitter at Cold Oatmeal Pod. That's what we are. That's that's who we are. That's what we are. Actually, we haven't said who we are yet. Again, oh. we don't have a full house with us today. Nick is on vacation. Uh, Stephanie is out as well, mm-hmm. and our good friend Laura Beal is potty training. Yeah, not herself. No, well. potty training <laughs> daughter. Well, that's what potty we think. And so she is not not with us uh, at the time, but in the room with us. We've got Nikki O'Mara, Joe Beshi, Carly Buell, Dirty Glasses Beshi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's feverish, feverishly good. polishing them up right now. Nasty glass. Cool. So today, this is a little spring break episode. Uh, we've got a, a good friend of ours on the podcast, Buddy Morehouse. Uh, Buddy is the vice president of communications for the Michigan Association of Public School Academies. Um, but before that, he was a newspaper man for 26 years. Uh, he was the editor of the Livingston County Daily Press in Argus. Um, won a lot of awards there, uh, national awards for his writing. Was actually named the top newspaper columnist in Michigan by the Associated Press in 2009. Uh, he's also a documentary filmmaker and has made uh, a number of short and longer films uh, that have appeared on PBS, ABC, Fox Sports Detroit, and the Major League Baseball Network. So because that's not enough, Why are we just not talking to him? Oh, my gosh. I, it's a good question. But apparently, since that isn't enough, he decided to write a book as well. Uh, the book is called Murder of an Elvis Girl, Solving the Jenny Maxwell Case About His Mother's Cousin. And I'm not going to 
I'll let him tell the story. It's a good one. So it is very good. It is keep, a good one. Super interesting. Keep listening. Uh, Buddy Morehouse. So Buddy Morehouse, thank you so much for being with us. It's New great author. to be here, Matt. New author. So I'm always, we've had a few people on the podcast who have written books. I'm in awe of you. Um, mm-hmm. I have a hard time writing emails correctly um, most days. So yeah. the fact that anyone could sit down and as the people around the room attest as they can. No. But I, uh, I was just agreeing with you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, um, I agree too. <laughs> no, but I, I've, I've always been in awe of people who can sit down and write a book. And especially I'm looking at the book. It's not a, it's not a small one. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a good half an inch, three quarters of an inch thick book there. That's right. That's good. It's good. So, um, I saw in, uh, the reason you're here is because of the book. And I saw an article that you put, um, out about this. Now I, I'm, I'm curious to know, and I read the article, about this, the story of your your mother's cousin, correct? Correct. Yep. And I was a little disappointed, although I know you're trying to move books and sell books, so maybe we can sell some here for you. You didn't didn't tell us the end of the story uh, in the in the newspaper article, so I'm curious how much of the the, the goods we're going to get here on the podcast here. But let's let's just start off here. Tell us first who who was Jenny Maxwell. So Jenny Maxwell was my mother's first cousin. Um, my grandfather and Jenny's dad were uh, brothers who came over from Norway in the early 1900s when they were in their teens. Um, And uh, so my grandfather's name was Elling, Jenny's dad's name was Jonas, and um, yeah, they were uh, part of 11 brothers and sisters in Norway, and three of the brothers came over here to to the States. So um, my mom was about six years older than Jenny, and my mom lived in Illinois, and Jenny lived in Brooklyn, and they were um, really close when they were kids. My mom would take the train out from Chicago to Brooklyn and babysit her in the summers. So, um, yeah, they, they were really close at that time. And then Jenny was, uh, they, they both also shared a love of theater and of acting. Um, and Jenny was literally discovered when she was 16 years old in New York City by Vincenta Minnelli, uh, who was Judy Garland's first husband and Liza mm-hmm. Minnelli's dad. He was a famous film director. Um, he was just visiting a, uh, an acting school in Brooklyn that Jenny was at and saw her up on stage and and thought that she was magnetic and fantastic, and, and he had her fly out to L.A. for a to screen test for a movie he was directing with Frank Sinatra called Some Came Running. And she didn't get that part, but um, the the people out there who, would, who had seen her when she was doing the screen test just fell in love with her, and basically she was kind of discovered at that point. She did a couple of sitcoms, uh, Father Knows Best and Bachelor Father, and um, she was only 16 years old, and basically from that point on, she she stayed in Hollywood and started becoming really, really big and really famous. And kind of the pinnacle of her career came in 1961, when she in in the fall of 1961, when she starred in Blue Hawaii with Elvis. And that's probably the the film that most people today know her for because that movie is still on TV a lot. Um, but in yeah, in November of 1961, Jenny was in that movie, which was the number one movie in the country. And then she was also, that same week, she was in an episode of a show called Dr. Kildare that was one of the top ten shows in the country. And um, she was the, the, the lead guest in that show. So um, she was in, in the night. A lot of people, um, <clears throat> excuse me, don't remember her now. But, but in the early 60s, she was literally one of the most famous actresses in Hollywood. So the the title of your book is Murder of an Elvis Girl Solving the Jenny Maxwell Case. So obviously it's 1961 things are going great, but things did not continue to go so go well for Jenny going forward. Yeah, exactly. Her her life on screen could not have been going better. She was she was getting more and more parts and and she was in um a film with Jimmy Stewart called Take Her She's Mine. And you have to remember this was a time back before streaming services and all that you know back in the day there were there were three channels on tv and if you were in a show on one of those three channels everybody in america was seeing you so almost every month or so jenny maxwell was popping up in an episode of you know the twilight zone or bonanza or my three sons or all these shows so um she's extremely famous um so on screen her, her career was going great but off screen it could not have been going worse she um got married when she was 17 years old to an assistant oh, wow. director, uh, a guy named Paul Rapp. Um, and then she became a mom at 18 years old, way too young. Uh, she was a 
terrible at marriage and terrible at motherhood. She was um, absolutely awful. She was not prepared for it. Uh, she ended up um, getting divorced when she in, in 1963 uh, when she was 22 years old. Um, she originally she they had a baby named Brian uh, Rapp who was born in 1960. Um, she originally got custody of Brian, but then but she was such a bad mom she actually lost custody of Brian, which was unheard of in those days for a father to get custody of a, of a child. Um, but she was heavy into partying and drugs and drinking and having affairs and, and uh, was just a living the Hollywood lifestyle, and that did not uh, go well with being a responsible mother. Um, and it got to the point where in, in 1968, she finally made the decision that she couldn't be both a star and a mom to her son, Brian. So she made the decision that she needed to quit Hollywood altogether, get out of acting altogether so she could devote herself to being a better mom to her son, Brian, which is what she did. So her entire Hollywood career only lasted 10 years. By the time she was 27 years old, she was out of the business entirely. Hmm. The, the very last thing she ever did was an episode of a show called The Wild Wild West um, that aired in 1968. And, and by then, she had convinced the judge to let her get more visitation with her son, uh, Brian and um, started repairing that relationship, uh, which which ended up becoming really really good. Um, but she also knew that she didn't want to be. She knew she didn't want to be an actress, and she didn't want to get a regular job either. What she wanted was a rich husband who would be able to afford her this Hollywood lifestyle that she'd become accustomed to. So in 1970, she married a guy named uh, Irvin Tip Raider who was a well-known L.A. divorce attorney, uh, a lot of mob connections. Um, he had been a former cop, a total, total obnoxious jerk of a guy. Everybody who knew Tip just could not stand this guy. But he was rich. Uh, he was 20 years older than Jenny. Uh, he was 49 when they got married, and she was 29 when they got married. And so in 1970, she married Tip, and, and then things didn't go well from there either. So before you get into the the, the case and obviously the, how how you got to be writing this book and what you discovered, what was it like for your family? I mean, you talked to your mom and your other aunt, aunts and uncles to have a movie star cousin in the family. The biggest when you said one of the biggest stars of that that decade. What was it like to have a movie star in the family? Oh, we were all, of course, incredibly proud of of Jenny and everything that she'd accomplished. And by the time I was, uh, you know, when she was out of Hollywood, I was eight years old. So I, I didn't really get to see much of her, um, you know, stuff while it was on TV. Um, but we all knew about her. Um, and But it was especially my mom and my, and my aunts and uncles who were kind of the same age as Jenny were incredibly proud of her. Um, my uncle told me stories. He joined – she was on the cover of magazines and had fan clubs and all that. My uncle joined her fan club and would get a monthly newsletter, you know, with her picture on it and all this information about her in there so we always thought it was just really really cool extremely cool obviously to have uh, this you know famous elvis movie film star in the family did she have much interaction with the family during that time no uh she she and my mom would occasionally trade letters with each other my mom was really the only one in the family that she had much uh interaction with at all um and they traded letters uh every once in a while we would get information through her dad uh johnny who um, Jonas, who, who became Johnny when he moved to America, um, we would get information from him um, about what was going on, and, and we would get pictures, and and um, anytime he would go out and visit Jenny out there. But um, other than that, there wasn't a lot. My mom and, and Jenny were really close when they were kids, but not as much when they became adults. Okay. So there wasn't much following of her. How about the, the personal side of things? Did, were, was the family aware of the struggle she was going through? No, not at all. She, uh, she, her, once she moved to Hollywood, she kind of, um, not, you know, like in a malicious way, but she kind of dropped ties with her family, the rest of the family back there and started just, you know, living that lifestyle out there. So move forward, I guess it's what was the early eighties. When was she, she and her husband tip, right? Or yep. they were, they were murdered. They were murdered. And so what was this, what was the story at the time as to what happened so she would, yeah, Tip Tip was, uh, like I said, this um, very famous Hollywood, L.A. Uh, divorce attorney. He also um, had represented a lot of other high-profile cases, particularly cops 
who had gotten in trouble with the law. Um, that was his kind of other specialty. Uh, his One of his most famous cases was this um, Beverly Hills cop who had gotten in trouble because he did a drug bust, and instead of turning in the drugs that he found, he decided he would keep them and sell them. It's like $2 million <laughs> worth of marijuana, which turned out was not legal. Um, so Tip represented that guy. It was a guy named Danny Stewart. He represented him in uh, in this trial. Um but, but Tip and Jenny throughout the, the 70s when they were married did nothing but fight and argue the entire time. They had affairs on each other. Everyone that you talked to, and the, and the police found this out later, uh, just said it was an absolutely terrible marriage. Um, well, the one thing that, that Jenny kept hearing from her friends and from her lawyer was that um, in order to be, to be entitled to half of what Tip had, and he was a rich guy, she had to stay married to him at least 10 years. If you're married to someone in California for 10 years, then you'd be entitled to half their estate. So Jenny filed for divorce a few times, and every time she did, it kept, you know, people kept reminding her that, well, if you can, if you can make it to 1980, then you can get half of everything that he has. So she made it to 1980, and finally in late 1980, she finally fire, filed for divorce from, from Tip. And um, this is going on then in early 1981, she moved out, got her own place. She got a condo in Beverly Hills and uh, moved out from living with Tip. And on June 10th, 1981, they were both gunned down outside of her condo in Beverly Hills. Um, the, whoever it was that did this shot Jenny twice in the head, and they shot Tip once in the stomach. Jenny died immediately at the scene, and Tip died about two and a half hours later at the hospital after that. Um, we found out about it. This is, you know, long before the internet. So, and, and this wasn't a big enough story uh, out in, in Michigan or out here where we would have heard about it. So the way we found out about it was, um, my mom had a cousin back in Norway who was kind of like in touch with the family and, and was the family, um, you know, like town crier and knew everything mm-hmm. that was going on. My, my mom got a call from her cousin in Norway, um, who had heard from, um, one of the uncles that Jenny had been murdered. So he called uh, and told that uh, Venki was the name of the woman in Norway. She called my mom and told her, and she, of course, broke down crying. And then she called um, me and my brother and my sister and told us what had happened. But we're st- we still weren't able to get any details as to what went on. You can't even go online and look something up. All we knew is that, that she'd been murdered along with her husband. So yeah, at, at the time, I was a... a a, um, a senior at the University of Michigan, and I was working for the student newspaper there. So I was the only one in the family who was even a quasi-journalist. So I said, I'm going to see what I can find out. So I called the Los Angeles Times and asked to speak to somebody in the library there. And I asked them if they had done a story on this, and, and she said, yeah. And she read me the story over the phone. And that's the first that the family got any details at all. Our side of the family got any details at all about what happened. And the way it was reported at the time was that it was uh, most likely a botched robbery attempt. That what happened is that somebody had confronted them on the street, walked them into the lobby of the condo, and had gunned down both of them. And it was a robbery that had gone bad. And for almost 40 years after that, that's really all our family ever knew. And if you look up Jenny Maxwell now on Wikipedia or on Internet Movie Database or there's other websites and books that have been written, that's always what it says in there is it was she was killed as part of an apparent robbery. And so <clears throat> at what point did you personally think that this is not the case? Or I mean, what, what piqued your curiosity into digging into what, what really happened? We, in our family, we had always had this suspicion that that, that was not the case. Um, that it had to be something else. The fact that it was never resolved and there was never a follow-up story done by any of the, the media in Los Angeles, uh, it just never felt right. Uh, we, we figured there had to be something that was, you know, more to this story. Um, and, and it was always listed as an unsolved murder, probably a botched robbery attempt. So um, I decided then, it, this was early 2019, um, my mom was in failing health at that time, and I just kind of got it in my head. I was going to try to look into this again and figure out, number one, if it ever was solved and we just never heard about it, or maybe that I could, you know, get enough information that I could somehow convince the police in Los Angeles to, you know, maybe look at this cold case. You know, as far as I know, maybe they had been looking at it. I don't know. 
Um, so that that's kind of where I was in early 2019. It's funny that you mentioned that because my phone was just buzzing on the table and Los Angeles, California calling. <laughs> it must be them. They heard. So they, they're listening. That's, are you serious? Yes. That's creepy. That's really weird. They're listening. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Tell buddy. them I'll call them back. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it was early 2019. I decided I was going to look into the the story, and what I found when I and, and we we I'll tell you as much as you want, including who did it if you want to. Really, um, I'd be more than happy to. I um, would love to know. Still buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> the the reason I didn't put it in that story is uh, the the one that I did for the Livingston Post. The reason I didn't put it in the story is that it's very complicated, and there's a lot you need to know leading up to it. Um, not only did I want people to buy, have to buy the book, but um, it's also really, it's not just as simple as saying, you know, John Smith did it. Um, th- there was a lot that went on uh, with it. But um, so early 2019, I, I started researching this to see if I could find out what had happened. And I first connected with, I, I looked at the newspaper story and there was a cop's name in there, a guy named John Dial who was the cop at the scene who had, who had said, we think this is an apparent robbery attempt. So I was able to actually track down John Dial. And I said, you know, he, he remembered the case, and he said, you know, I was only on it for like that day, that afternoon. And then the Wilshire Department or Wilshire Division Dec- uh, Detectives Bureau came in, and they got the case. He said, so, you know, I can tell you what it was. He gave me a lot of information about the actual murder scene and what happened and all that kind of thing, but he didn't actually investigate the case. Um, so then I talked to a friend of, uh, I, 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 it, it took a lot of internet digging, but I found a friend of Jenny's who was um, from the 1970s, who was her friend after she left Hollywood. She gave me a lot of information about just how bad Tip's mar- Tip and Jenny's marriage was. Um, then I finally got a hold of someone in the, the Wilshire Division Detective Department. And he, of course, had never heard of the story. It had been a cold case for almost 40 years. And was it considered a cold case? Yeah, uh, because of the it, it was considered a cold case. Um, because, uh, but he said, I think we might have a file on it here somewhere. He said we have this whole the whole room full of files that haven't been digitized yet. But let me see if I can go in and find something. So he went in and he found the. Um, it, it took him a day, you know, just looking for for my file. He found the file that was in there. It wasn't the file. There was, there's an actual file that said how the case was solved, but this was one of the initial files. But it had on it um, the the name of the detectives, the two guys. It just said Thies and Rogers. The, those names were on there. So now I had a great lead because now at least told me I could at least figure out who the detectives were, who, who did this. So I finally tracked down this guy named Mike Thies. Uh, the other cop, Jerry Rogers, he he died about 30 years ago of a heart attack. But Mike Thies, who was the lead detective on the case, is still around and still in, in Los Angeles. So through a, a lot of digging, I was able to get an email for him. I got a hold of him. He emailed me back. Um, this is now February, early February of 2019. I told him who I was. I said, you know, I'm, I'm related to Jenny Maxwell. I was just wondering what you can tell me about that case. Was it ever, you know, looked at? Did, did you guys ever get any leads? And he goes, yeah, we actually solved that like 10 days after it happened on there. And nobody ever asked us about it. But I know exactly what happened with the case. So, wow. So now you're dying to know what happened. Yeah. yeah so like, what, happened. what? Actually, before you tell us what happened, I this <laughs> quick whole, commercial. This whole thing is fascinating to me because we've all seen, I mean, these cop dramas on TV – I, I like it. My, Bosch is my favorite one, and there's mm-hmm. always there's always the scene where they go dig up the the old retired detective who's like in Palm Springs someplace, and they ask him about some case that happened 40 years ago, and you're always like, how they don't remember? How can they re- they solved how many cases? Or the fact that you got the guy who just happened to answer the phone and like, oh yeah, I'll take a day to go find a file from 1981. That happens. Yeah. That's exactly what happened here. Well, the the guy that I got a hold of at the detective division, he was really curious when I he was like some guy in his thirties. He wasn't even alive when the when the murder happened, but um, he was really his curiosity was really piqued when I told him about the case. He goes, "I never heard of that one. Let me see." You know, so he wasn't just doing it. I think to help me out. He wanted to see, hey, what is going on with this uh, with this case? So, um, well, I'll tell you, I'll I'll lead up to who did it. So. 
they get on the case and they start investigating it. And they realized right away that it was not a robbery at all. Uh, nothing was taken from either one of them. Jenny had a really expensive handbag that she was carrying that was not taken um, at all. Nothing else was, was taken in there. Uh, he said that if someone was going to rob them, they wouldn't be doing it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in broad daylight in, in uh, Beverly Hills. And they you know, wouldn't have done it in this way. And you tend to, to pick off um, females who are alone and not like someone. And Tip was a really big guy. That whoever this, this bad guy was was not going to rob two people at one time. They said, we knew right away it was not a robbery. Uh, so it was also really curious to us that Jenny was shot twice in the head. She was obviously executed, and Tip was only shot once in the stomach. So that, that was also really interesting to us. So they started uh, digging around a little bit, and that's when they found out that their marriage was just absolutely awful. It was just terrible. They fought all the time. They, they'd interviewed people on both sides that they'd had affairs with um, on there. That you know, They found out all the information about how many times Jenny had filed for divorce before that. Um, and then they, um, the first really big break in the case came when they checked they got the ballistics back on the on the ammo on there and they found that the bullets that were that were used to kill them and they were several of them were in the walls in the in the condo as well it was this really rare ammo called supervel that had not been even available for sale for the last 10 years it was this really rare stuff that was made at one place in indiana and they stopped making it in about 1970 uh, it was incredibly lethal and incredibly uh, fast, these bullets. Um, they, were, they were very popular with cops and bad guys in the 60s and 70s, but this small company in Indiana stopped making them, and, and the ballistics people had never seen Superbell anymore. So that was really curious that they found that. And the reason that it was curious is because Tip Raider had in his car that day the exact same ammo that was used to kill them. So he had four boxes of Supervel in the trunk of his car along with about four guns that were in there. So that told them that either this gunman had stolen the ammo out of Tip's car or that Tip had somehow given this guy the ammo that was used to kill them because it matched up totally. There was no absolutely no question about it. Um, so then they started doing some more digging around, and, and I'm skipping a lot of parts of the story, but I'm getting to the good stuff. They started doing a lot of um, a lot of interviews with some other people that Tip knew, and one of the first people they talked to was that cop Danny Stewart, who Tip had represented in the drug case a long time ago. Danny had gone to prison for about a year and gotten out and became a private investigator after that, and Tip hired him to do a lot of work. When they went and talked to Danny, they found out that about four weeks before the murders happened, Tip had come to Danny and he said, "Do you know somebody who?" might be able to do a job for me. Essentially, I need somebody killed. And Danny said, no, I don't know that. And he goes, well, would you be willing to do something like this? And he goes, no, I'm not going to do something like that. Danny told him, he said, I know for a fact that he was talking about Jenny, that he wanted to get somebody to kill Jenny. Um, because Jenny had just filed for divorce. Jenny had filed for divorce, and um, yes, and, and he did not want Jenny to get his money. Um so he knew that he said she didn't say Jenny's name, but everything he was talking about, it led me to believe that's exactly who it was. Well, then they talked to a couple more people. The police interviewed a couple more people who found out that Tip had done exactly the same thing with them. And one of the people that he talked to actually said, I want you to kill Jenny, and then I want you to shoot me in a really, really superficial way so that I'm going to have an alibi in the uh in this and that they're not going to be able to to pin this on me mm. because obviously i didn't have anything to do it because they they shot me too mm. um so now they have three people who are all basically telling the same story and one of them who said that that tip actually you know wanted them to shoot him too they did some more digging and they found out that about eight months before that happened tip had actually been shot by a prowler in his backyard it was a a shot in the back, but it, it was bad enough where he actually hit. He didn't want to have to report it, but it was actually bad enough where he had to go to the hospital, and then the police reported it. Well, what that told the police is that, um, okay, this probably proved to Tip, who's a big, tough guy, that he thinks he could take a bullet mm -hmm. on there. So um, the last piece of the puzzle that they got was when they got a hold of Tip's will, the last will that he ever um, filed. He had a few of them on there. 
and he's and, and this thing said that this will said that in the event of my in the eventuality of my of my death, I do not referring to Jenny. I do not want that lying, cheating, deceiving woman to get one dime of my money. Mm-hmm. So the police officially concluded at that point then that what had happened was that Tip had hired, he'd found someone to do the job. He'd hired a hitman. Um, it was probably somebody he met at this restaurant called Red Tracton's Steakhouse in Los Angeles where all the mob guys hung out, and Tip was there all the time. Um, and Tip, actually, the car that he was driving the day of the murders was a car that Red Tracton had given him. Um, so we think that Red, it, it's like, and if you've seen the, the movie Goodfellas, there's that scene toward the beginning where they're walking around the restaurant and, and you know, hey, it's Jimmy two times and all that. You know, mm-hmm. everybody in the, that, that was Red Tracton Steakhouse in the 1980s, 70s and 80s in Los Angeles. All the mob guys hung out there. So they're pretty sure what happened is that Tip had gone to that restaurant. He had found somebody to do this job that he had somebody. Uh, the idea was to kill Jenny and make no uh, mistake about it. So they shot her twice in the head and then to wound him. And that meshed with the fact that it was just a it was it was a, a wound to the side of his stomach that ended up. They think he might have turned his body or something at the last second, and it got too much of of the uh, the organs inside of his stomach, and he ended up bleeding out about two and a half hours later. So, so that's what the cop told me. I was wow. able to. This is this is now February of 2019, and I was at, I, I'm not saying this to be dramatic, but it really did happen. So I was able to tell my mom what had happened and then about about two weeks later so my mom passed away but but she was able to have in her mind the the peace of mind of at least knowing what had Mm -hmm. happened to jenny so then after that and in may of 2019 i i wanted to know more so i i flew out to los angeles and i met with mike these the detective uh, about a block from the murder scene um by then he had gotten from a friend of his at the police department he'd gotten the actual files of the of the case and he was able to read to me a lot of what was on there and then we walked over to the murder scene at south holt avenue uh right in beverly hills there and it kind of still looks the same the building is still there and everything's the same so um we couldn't go in the building because it was locked but you know he walked around showed me everything how they investigated it and where they went um so do they know who who pulled the trigger no that that, was that's what, technically why it's still a cold case got it they know who's responsible for it tip raider was responsible for it but they don't know who actually did it and and their theory is that so unless somebody is you know some 80 year old hitman wants to do a deathbed confession and say that he did it he said you know we're probably never going to find out who that did he hired a professional and you know those those guys have a way of never being known so, so technically, it's it's still open because they they don't know who pulled the trigger. A professional with bad aim, apparently. Yeah. Like, yeah, got a little bit too much. Yeah, I said yeah. you're just supposed to get me right on the side there. And um, so that's why I said that it's it's more complicated than just saying you know that that Tip Raider was the one responsible because there's a lot really that mm-hmm. led up to that. Um, and then while I was out in L.A. in in 2019, I, I went and knocked on the door of Brian Rapp, Jenny's son. Uh, who's my second cousin, somebody I've never met. Um, he had no idea who I was, you know, who I existed or that I existed or, or any, really anyone on Jenny's side of the family. Um, and then we ended up sitting down for about three hours or so, and he told me all about his mom's life. And he actually told me that the, the police had told him back then what happened, and he just never told anyone. So he knew. He knew. What he was. knew. Hmm. He knew, but no, but but no one else did. And and like I said, it's been in this file, this police file in L.A. since 1981 that it was solved, and nobody's ever. Because hmm. Tip Isn't wasn't it, his. Tip wasn't his dad. Tip was his stepdad. Right. Yeah, okay. his his dad was Paul Rapp, the guy that right. Jenny married when she was uh, mm-hmm. 17 years old. So how hmm. old was he then when his mom died? He was 20. He had almost oh, okay. turned 21. He okay. was 20 years old. Um. Here, here's the really sad thing about this too is that um so the way that their will was was written up and the way that things were legally worked back then if both tip and jenny had about i don't know four million dollars worth of property and and money and all that um if they had both died at the same time then they then that property would have been split evenly among their heirs uh tip had five daughters from three different wives before that and then jenny had brian um, if they both died at the same time, that would have been split up evenly between them. But because Jenny died first, even though Tip died two and a half hours later, the minute Jenny died, 
her entire side of the estate went to Tip. Then hmm. when Tip died, it went to his five daughters, and Brian got nothing out of it. He, the one thing he wanted, his lawyer told him, there's nothing we can do. The one thing he wanted is his mom had bought him a motorcycle that he kept out at this lake house that they had in a place called Idlewild out there. It's the only thing he wanted was that motorcycle. It meant a lot to him. And they asked the lawyer for Tip's daughters if they could have it, and they said no. So Brian ended up getting nothing out of it. Is it not weird that no one wrote about it or knew? Like, that seems super strange if this guy was a big deal and she was a once famous movie star. How is there not? Well, when she died, um, and that's one of the things that I I point out in the book there, um, when – because this is the time before the internet and Jenny had been out of Hollywood for about 13 years, when she died and they wrote about it in the story, nobody had any clue who she was, who she really was. She she wasn't in the story as Jenny Maxwell, the former actress. It was just Tip Raider's wife, Jennifer, oh, in there. So yeah. they didn't even know. They didn't dig around well enough. I, I, I attribute that to a really bad failing on the part of the, the media in L.A. at the time that they didn't go – Okay, let's find out who this wife was. You know, oh my mm-hmm. God! You know, twelve years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, she, literally twenty years before the murders, she was one of the most famous actresses in Hollywood, and nobody knew it at the time. Um, but it, it was a, a, I think a, a real. The whole thing was a, a terrible failing of the the newspaper and the media that reported yeah. it at that time. Also, you probably didn't come across this, but why didn't he file for divorce before that ten year window tip came up? Yeah, good question. Tip. He loved being married to Jenny because he was he was obsessed with Hollywood and movie stars. Okay. And he loved ha- having Hollywood arm candy. This beautiful and Jenny was beautiful. This beautiful actress who was twenty years younger than him that he could parade around and you know say, "Hey, this is my uh, this is my wife." So um, and Tip was you know Jenny was his fourth wife, so he was really bad at being married as well. Mm-hmm. But ev- everyone that they talked to then said he was obsessed with Hollywood and obsessed with that and his. First three wives were not actresses, but his fourth one was, and he loved that fact that he could go out in the town and <laughs> everybody would look at him with envy. Yeah, you're right, Joe, because he could have just divorced her instead of setting up her murder. Well, I yes. mean, it sounds like he hated Being her too, himself. and it was a big. I mean, like, and he knew that by the time they got to ten years, that she was going to get right. half of everything. Yeah, right. Well, the other thing that that they they didn't just have affairs on each other; they did it to in in a way that was designed to intentionally uh, hurt them even more. So what Jenny did is she would not just have affairs on tip. She would have affairs with his best friends on there just to to stick it to him like that. So every, everyone that, that they interviewed and everyone that you talked to just said that, you know, they it, it's so hard to comprehend, but they just despised each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe just they, get divorced. He didn't, yeah. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't want to just be out of the marriage. He wanted her to suffer in, yeah. you know, in the worst right. possible way. And instead, um, he sat there for two hours while he bled out. Yeah, wondering, right. Oh man, mm. I bet those two hours he was just like, "Oh, dang it." Does it, did you was he conscious? Do you have any idea if he was like, like out of it or was he? Yeah, apparently he was out of it. So, they, yeah. the, the police went there. Mike Thee said he went to the hospital to try to interview him. Um, you know, when mm-hmm. they found out he was there, by the time they got there, he was, he was dead. And the, uh, he he it was pretty much unconscious from the time that they, um, they took him over to the hospital. So they didn't get any information. And if you want, do we have time for one more sidelight? Of course. Because there's another fascinating thing, aspect to the story. Um, so Elvis's best friend in the 1950s was an actor named Nick Adams, who uh, was very famous. He was in a, um, a TV series called The Rebel that was on TV in the, the late 1950s. Um, he was in one of my all-time favorite movies uh, called No Time for Sergeants with Andy Griffith. I love that movie. But Nick Adams was a huge star in the 50s and 60s. In the 50s, he was... Elvis's best friend. They hung around all the time, uh, right before Elvis went into the Army. Um, well, in 1968, Nick Adams turned up dead in his house in Los Angeles. He was found um, unconscious in his, um, in his house in there. They ruled that the cause of death, it was a very, very strange um, circumstances, but the cause of death was a lethal combination of these two drugs, one called uh, peraldehyde, one called promazine, I think, one of them was for taken for um, alcoholism, and the other one for bipolar disorder. But if you mix these drugs and take them in a in a combination, it's like ten times more deadly than than um, you would ever normally take. Uh, it would kill you. 
Um, well, he was found dead in his house, and the person who found him dead in his house was Tip Raider. Tip was his attorney at the time. They were very close friends. They were supposed to have dinner one night, and when Nick Adams didn't show up, Tip went over to his house, saw the lights on inside. He broke in a window, went upstairs, and supposedly found Tip there. And almost nobody believes that that's really what happened. Hmm. A whole lot of people, including um, some people in Nick Adams' family, are pretty sure that Tip either killed him or had something to do with it. So the fact that you know for a fact that Tip was the Hmm. one that hired someone to kill Jenny maybe leads more credence to the fact that not only did did Tip Raider kill Elvis's co-star in Blue Hawaii, but he possibly also killed his former best friend as well. So here we have a guy, Tip Raider, who nobody had ever heard of and might be one of the more you know infamous criminals in, in L.A. history. Sounds like you have a second book. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it's a chapter in this one. Chapter yep. in the one? Yes. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the process of writing the book. So you did all of this research to kind of bring some closure for your mom and your family. When did you decide to take this and put it into a book? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'm a, I'm a former newspaper editor and, and writer, and I still um, – blog a lot for the site called the Livingston Post, and I work for the Charter School Association, and I do a whole lot of writing for them. I've written, you know, billions of words in my life, but I've never, ever written a book before. And the process for doing that is so much different, as I find out, than any other kind of writing um, that I had done before. So after I got all this information, like mid-2019, I just kind of came up with the, the realization that I had to that I wanted to do this as a book, you know, put it in a book, even though I'd never written a book before. Um, so I started really, uh, it was like late 2019, um, the process of, I, I, I came up with the idea that I wanted to do it kind of in the, in the style of a novel based on a true story instead of doing it just as a straight-up journalistic book. Um, so now I'm even more, stepping more outside my comfort zone because I've, I've never written a novel, certainly never written a book, but definitely not a novel before. So when you do that, you know, I had to, I, I, I kept as true to the facts as I possibly could, but you have to create a lot of situations and you have to create dialogue and, you know, even some characters and, and all that. So um, so I say in the book that it's a, it's a, it's a novel based on a true story, which it is, um, but, I, but I wanted to meticulously research as much of not only the story of Tip and Jenny, but, but Tip's or but Jenny's career as well. So I would have in there, you know, like a the scene where she um, landed her first audition with Frank Sinatra. Well, there were there were some a lot of newspaper articles that were written about that. So I, you know, painstakingly researched the date as to when that was when it happened and when that was reported in there because I wanted all that to be as true to possible. So um, spent a lot of time on, on newspapers.com looking up old old papers, um, and it it took uh, it took almost a year to to finally do that. I started in, in the spring when COVID hit and we were all locked in our houses and I didn't have, you know, anywhere to go at night. So I, in the evenings, I would work during the day and then in the evenings, I would just write a chapter of the book and just started chipping away at it that way. And um, I finally finished it in late 2020 and um, just decided I wanted to um, self-publish it. So I put it on Amazon and which is a if I great advice to anyone that wants to do this it's so simple if you want to publish a book on amazon they really really make it easy uh, in every way from publishing it to you know the how to how you get get paid and everything else it's very simple to do um yeah so it's now it's murder of an elvis girl and it's it's on amazon now and that's kind of the the process that i went through that's awesome i'm always so impressed with people who actually did something uh, worthwhile during quarantine <laughs> yeah i'm like yeah. what are you really that's what you did yeah i'm just i'm very in awe of that because i just watched a lot of tv so oh i did that too that's awesome but, you know. i'm i'm looking forward to reading the book how Great. did you find um you mentioned early in like your that. research you found like the, the friend who said that their marriage was terrible how did you where did that lead come from <laughs> okay yeah great <laughs> question um there's a I think it's called legacy.com. There's this website that is um, up there that, that where people, you know, post um, obituaries, and mm-hmm. they also post in there for famous people um, and even not-so-famous people, you know, Jenny Maxwell, June 10th, 1941, that that's when she died. So I was one day I was just looking up stuff about Jenny, and I went to the site, and I saw in there that you can leave a virtual flower on this website hmm. on there for – and there were – 
tons of people who left these virtual flowers for Jenny, and most of them were fans of Blue Hawaii. I just, you know, I can't believe you died so young. You were so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And there was this one woman in there, um, and I'm not going to use her name because she intentionally told me that she's still to this day afraid that because the mob might be involved in this somehow that she doesn't want to be linked to it at all. Hmm. But we'll call her Nancy. So I found Nancy on there, and it said, you know, I miss you every day, old friend. And she had an unusual enough name that it was a name that I could Google and find out. So I tracked down Nancy, and she was working for a real estate company down south in there. And I just called her out of the blue, and I just said, are you happen to be the one who left the comment about Jenny Maxwell? And it goes, oh, she was my dear friend. I just absolutely loved her. You know, she's probably my best friend. And so we had this big, long conversation, and then she told me, filled me in on a whole lot of those details. And she told me at the time she thought that, tip had something to do with it so she didn't know either she didn't know the um she didn't know that the police had concluded that that tip uh shot her and and um and and then had himself uh shot but she was almost convinced that he had something to do with it she said that yeah she told me again how absolutely terrible their marriage was so yeah but to answer the question it just i just got lucky you know kind of dug and found a name and you you do it and um, yeah, and then I was able to track her down that way. So Murder of an Elvis Girl, Solving the Jenny Maxwell Case. Buddy Morehouse, your first book. Are you going to write a second book about something uh, else? Or is, have, you, have you checked this box and now you can move on to something else? Or I should ask, you're a documentary filmmaker too. Are you going to make a movie out of your book? I'm, well, yeah, we, you know, we've already talked to some people out in, in California about that might be interested in doing something with it. So. It, it, it feels somebody, like, it somebody feels might like do the kind it. of story that someone would want to make a make a movie about. Yeah, and yeah. It, and it feels like a podcast I would listen to, honestly. So yeah, here, you here have a are. lot of you got a lot of options. One, well, I'm I'm on this. I'm not going to listen to this one. Here we are. <laughs> so, Buddy Morehouse, thanks so much for taking some time. I appreciate you coming Thank by. Thank you, Matt. And Amazon, go there, buy the book. It is Murder of an Elvis Girl. We'll be right back. We're back, and we're all going to go write books now, right? I'm going to at least start read tonight. The, I'm going to read this one. You're at least going to read one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read instead of watch TV. I am terrified. The idea of writing a book, I just, I, I just can't. Just pass. Yeah, no, no, that sounds exactly. terrible. I don't know what I would even write about. It's yeah, it just it's a lot. Of, it's so even lot. if I had something cool, I'd be like, eh, no. That used to be when I was like eight. That was my dream. I wanted to be an author. Really? I wanted to be a writer. Yeah, really bad, like forever. That's such an interesting dream. But it's. And I would always end all my stories with, and so-and-so happened, or did it? <laughs> <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> Everything I wrote. I used so, to write stories a lot, too, when I yeah. was a kid, actually. Got to write that book. I got to go dig those up. Publish those. <laughs> it's already done for you. <laughs> my, my 10-year-old writing. Did you write, like, mystery stuff? Or yeah, all like I stories. would like to. Yeah, th- those are the t- and and that's the type of books I like to read too. I know that's so. your thing. Yeah. That's yeah. why I had to make sure you were here for this podcast because I yeah, this is our true crime expert, right up my alley. Nikki. Tip Raider. That's just Tip such Raider. a. I know it's an awesome name such too. Such a, a such a L.A. Yeah. Cr- scumbag name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tip Raider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonder what else he's what else he did. It can't be. You kill two people. That's got to be. Right. Well, once you, don't just once you start, people. yeah, you you, you keep the especially if it's the Elvis train rolling. Friend. I right. I think that it's curious that there is some connection to Elvis there for both of them. Yeah. Like, did like, he secretly want to be Elvis, or did Elvis secretly have these people killed? Like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that's the obvious question. When, did when he did kill Elvis? Elvis was dead. Though. Did. <laughs> Is he dead? Was he dead? <laughs> what do we really know? We here? don't know that. <clears throat> That's true. Maybe maybe Elvis had a pact and he didn't. He just wanted Jenny dead at some point. He just didn't like. Exactly. At some point, tip. I need you to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't really put that in. I don't really look at Elvis and see criminal masterminds. Well, you know, sounds like their you own. Have a story to write. <laughs> That's my story. You could do the choose your own adventure to Buddy's book and say, or turn or. to page seventy five to see if Elvis really did it. <laughs> or did he? I, <laughs> did he? I would read that. 
Do you guys have any famous relatives? No. No. Well, well why do you, you say, like, no, like, no, idiot. Not like, like that. <laughs> You'd know about it if I did. I'm just trying to think. I don't think I have. <clears throat> My grandpa was a pro baseball player. So yeah. that's, I mean, he wasn't like in Hollywood or anything, but yeah. And then he coached at MSU. That's as famous as my family gets. Yeah, I don't. I'm trying to think. I don't. No, I, don't I got nothing. I, no, I nothing highly doubt I have any. Come from a long line of losers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Long line. Uh, well, anyway, that was fun. Yeah. A nice little spring break episode to escape from, escape from here and listen to a story about L.A. Yeah. but he's always good but he's an awesome storyteller too he's made a um bunch of a bunch of movies he's yeah he's just a good really guy. yeah he ran for he ran for the state house he was the editor of a, a newspaper are his forever. days longer somehow i don't know i don't know <laughs> he doesn't watch tv that's probably it yeah anyway <clears throat> buddy morehouse was our guest today on the cold oatmeal podcast he just finished writing a book called murder of an elvis girl solving the jenny maxwell case Check it out on Amazon. You can buy it, buy it there, and here are some more details about this cool thing. Other, th- other than that, anybody else have anything before the, the good of the pod? Nope. 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 Go to thinkspacelab.com. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Help them out. Good, good meetings. You can hold your meetings there. Buy the book, Amazon. We are at the Cold Oatmeal Pod on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't think I have anything else to say. All right. Okay. This is Matt Resch. You've been listening to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast.